We continue in a mini-series that's leading us up to uh, uh, the series on Christmas, which starts next week. Uh, but we're looking, instead of starting the new year, with kind of, you know, you always do the close of the old year, start the new year. It just felt, especially for the elders, we wanted to spend more time saying goodbye to the last three, three years and positioning ourselves to go forward. Because in one sense, although we've tried to restart, so many people are describing how much of the last three years is they still dragging with them. It's like a, you know, ball and chain. And how do you prepare for a real new season? Now, someone else who's preparing for a real new season is Sean and Michelle. Um, they didn't want to share, but I'm going to ask them to come up and just quickly tell us what they're up to. And then we're going to cast them, I mean, send them out in Jesus' name. Um, Sean, come. Uh, Michelle, come. Let's pray for you guys. Um, let's just hear what's happening. And then we want to pray for you. Thanks, Craig. Um, yeah, we can't believe the time's arrived. Many of you may know that on Tuesday, so we're counting down the hours. There were only a few hours of sleep last night because we're packing up home. Um, so we, we're actually embarking on a, a journey with our family. We've taken the year off for 2023, and uh, we have a boat, and we're planning on doing a bit of traveling around Southeast Asia with the family. And um, we've just had so many miraculous events put us on a path to this, what's well, going to be our destination. But um, yeah, it's been an incredible journey. And although many of you may not even know, during the course of the last year or two, um, many of you have had a hand in it, um, unsighted, but it has been amazing. And uh, we've certainly seen God's hand throughout the journey. And we're looking forward to just seeing what the world will offer um, and as a family, how we grow together and whether unidirectional, this is a new word we've learned, a new, a new phrase, but um, as a family, focusing on one thing together and obviously having uh, God at the center of it. I asked Michelle to say words because I said, does she want to say anything? And she said, well, she'll jump in, but she hasn't. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, I think you covered. There we go. Okay, let's have a couple of, um, Damon and Jess, I know you're part of their life group, maybe Jono and Taryn. We want to come and pray for them. And, uh, yeah, we want to just recognize the gift they've been to us. Pray God's joy, delight. Uh, protection, uh, yeah, there's uh, many reasons why this not necessarily, uh, why it maybe didn't happen, but is still happening. <laughs> and so, yeah, we want to pray for them. So, Father, we thank you for this wonderful, wonderful couple, this family, the girls, uh, the connection you've given to us with them. And Lord, today we want to say, Jesus, Go with them. Jesus, lead them. Jesus, be their shepherd even on the sea. <laughs> uh, we do pray for still waters, <laughs> green pastures. That this would really be a time, Lord, of being able to be connected to you, to one another, and to sense, Lord, that promise, he restores my soul. Lord, that this would be a season of you investing in them at a very deep level. And Lord, may they delight in your good creation. May they delight in one another. May they delight in you. 
And Lord, may they come back bringing just much to share and give away. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So ready for a change of season. Are you ready for a change of season? Anyone think that would be a grand idea? Ready for a change of season part two. So we build on what we covered last week, and that's going to lead us actually directly into communion, that simple act of eating together that describes and releases powerful kingdom realities. We're not always sure how. But uh, Jesus made it clear. So last week we looked at Psalm 20, which was a blessing to change season, to move from distress to blessing, from threat to victory, from needing help to finding support, from longing to fulfillment, from planning to success, and from prayer to answer. That, that's Psalm 20. That's that blessing of, of moving through that. But what we saw among several things is that in order to move into the future, we need to process the past. And, uh, and if we don't deal with the stuff that's been, especially our losses and our defeats, but even our successes, we didn't cover this last week, uh, last week, but, you know, the Apostle Paul looks at his righteousness and everything else, and he says, forgetting what is behind me, I press on. And so he has to process the past, not to ignore it. Forgetting is not ignoring it. It's being able to get to the point where you realize that because of what Jesus has done, my past does not dictate my next steps. And so he positioned himself. It's Andrea's car and the wind that's blowing. So we'll take that prophetically. Um, but if we don't deal with losses, defeats, or alternately our victories, um, those things can actually mess with our ability to move into the future well. And particularly in the light of the last few years, we looked at at the need to actually grieve well. Grieving badly is when you try and avoid it, short-circuit it, suppress it, pretend you don't need it, ignore the distress and the pain. In other words, you just stay on the one side of Psalm 20, and you don't actually, you're hoping you're going to just move there, but you, you can't actually make the move. So grieving badly ignores the hurt of the past, and it allows it to wound you in the future. By ignoring the wounds of the past. And that's true socially, that's true politically, that's true nationally, and it's true personally. By ignoring the wounds of the past, you allow them to wound you in the future. And so the grief process, name what you've lost. You see, grief is an opportunity to begin again, but you need to identify what has this time, for example. And we, we heard some powerful stories of what the last three years have cost many of us. What is gone that I won't get back? Now, there are other things that are gone that you can get back, and it's important to be able to identify those. And even who has died, who is no longer here, and so we did that. And then discover out of this time, what are you meant to take with you? You discover legacy. You discover heritage that out of the past, you meant to take stuff forward. It's God's gift to you. And so Jesus, coming out of an incredibly tough time in the wilderness, returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. He takes something from the wild place back where he wants to go. And then we need to do the forgiveness work. Step number three. You know, we pray, forgive us our sins. So we need to name, confess any guilt, regret, and shame. 
as we forgive those who sinned against us. You see, no life, no experience, no legacy is perfect. And so we will need precisely because of this to forgive stuff in order to move forward. And if we don't, we find ourselves yoked to the past and its pain and its trauma. We relive the injury. And the way we break the power of the past is by forgiving it or receiving forgiveness. And then we had to stop here because all of these things, the ability to process the past, find blessing in it, move in heritage, and to forgive are found in God himself. And so that is where we're going to go today. So come with me to Ephesians chapter 2. The, um, the Apostle Paul is writing a circular letter to all the churches in the surrounding areas of Ephesus that were birthed during his mission to the city of Ephesus. We read that while he is at Ephesus, all the surrounding regions got impacted. This letter is sort of like to that whole mission birthing area. Um, and uh, his primary concern, now this was a very Gentile area. There were synagogues there, but overwhelmingly it's a very Gentile area. And his, his main concern in the book of Ephesians is to show why the Gentiles, in other words, the non-Jews, are now fully included in God's people and God's plans. And he knows, as he says this, where his readers will struggle most. Why only now is Israel's God opening the door to the nations? Like, like why only now? Why are we only hearing this now? In chapter 1, Paul's simplest answer to the question, why did the Jews get it first? Why are the Gentiles coming in second? And Paul's simple answer is this, that's what God chose to do. Like he just decided sovereignly that that's how he's going to do it. He's start with Abraham, and he's going to build a nation, he's going to make them a light, and he's going to bless the world through them, is his intention. And so little sidebar, election in scripture, contrary to what we call five-point Calvinism, does not mean that God has only chosen some people to be saved. Like, we need to realize that that letter was not written to you. It was written for you. It was written to someone else. Sometimes Paul says, and so we have been chosen. The people who follow Jesus, the Gentiles, are excluded from that sentence <laughs> in Ephesians chapter 1. Because he says, you later were included. So election there is not talking about whether people are going to eternal salvation or not. It's talking about the sequence of how God is bringing salvation to the whole world. And why the Jews first? And Paul says, well, that's how God chose to do it. And, and then he proves in the letter that it's not to our credit that we all were objects of wrath. We were all far from God and we all needed Jesus. And so, whether it's in Ephesians 1 or Romans 9 through 11 or 1 Peter chapter 2, he's always almost wrestling with, especially when he's writing to very gentle areas, this hard topic, why Israel first? And Paul adds to his first answer, not to contradict it, but to complete it then. Um, he says this in chapter 3, for example. In some ways, this whole plan was hidden until Jesus. It wouldn't be obvious that the nations are included until Jesus came. And so he describes how now they have an 
they are here to administer the gospel, literally to take this and work out how it works. That's what administration is. We've got, we've got to work out how this works. And one of the interesting things is in the administration, you no longer need a priest and a temple and a da-da-da-da because something else has happened. I'm getting ahead of myself. So in some ways, how the nations are included is hidden until Jesus comes. You couldn't see it. The prophets could kind of drop in and tell you a little bit, but it was like seeing through a glass darkly, if I could steal another use, completely out of context. In other ways, this is what had been prophesied all along. So in some ways, you couldn't see it. In other ways, it's been there. And then in Romans 1 and 2, Paul adds this thought specifically to the Gentiles, but he'll, he'll zap the Jews later. He says, don't tell me you didn't know God was there. From the world around you to your conscience in your heart, don't tell me you didn't know the God of Israel is the God who has come to save you. Don't tell me you didn't know. And then he turns to the Jews and says, don't tell me you didn't know. <laughs> We all have sinned and fallen short. This is such a big conversation for Paul. And, and, and we really lose the plot on all these glorious descriptions when we take those words and we just apply them to ourselves without understanding who they applied to first. Now, there is a sense in which every person in Jesus is chosen, but not in the five-point Calvinist sense, but I'm not going to ride that horse anymore. Okay. Chapter 2 shows why chapter 3 is possible. So chapter 1, we have this glorious introduction. Chapter 3, we have this administration going to the Gentiles and the God who's able to pour out his love in ways that we cannot possibly contain or even understand or explain. And then God is able through the church to do exceedingly more abundantly than anyone can kind of even dream of because love has now taken hold of the people of Jesus. Jew and Gentile. Chapter 2 shows us why, how this is possible. From verses 1 to 10, it's possible because of God's kindness, His goodness, and the riches of His mercy, the sheer magnificence of God's character, and the grace that He gives us because of who He is. And all of us start there, whether Jew or Gentile. No one earns it. It's not by works. No one can boast. All of us receive this gift by grace through faith. But the mechanics of what makes this possible, is God just having a good day when he forgives us? Is forgiveness automatic? Am I entitled to forgiveness? No. To be entitled to forgiveness is injustice. You're just demanding that someone lets the wrongs go. And so we come to the deep mechanics of the gospel that brings Jew and Gentile together and opens the door. And I want to show you that deals with the past and opens the future. Because that's so critical. If we're going to grieve and find forgiveness and open the future... We need to understand on what basis uh, can I let this go? Can I put this behind me? And can I step into God's future? So from verses 11, the nuts and bolts 
of how we are all, and then a little bit later, like verse 20, part of God's people, his household, his new temple dwelling, all of us together. And most significantly in the context of these two sermons, where we find the legal authority, okay, carefully chosen words, the lawful legal right to begin again and to say no to the past and to say yes to God's future. There's authority to do that. This is not wishful thinking. This is not turning over a New Year's resolution. This is literally laying hold of the work of God through Jesus so that your past does not dictate your future. You see, the past has a legal power over you. You know that in every single day of your life. <laughs> There's so many things that, that literally define you and your circumstance and so until a new authority is put in place, your past has the rights to your future. So that's why we need Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11. Therefore, remember, talking about the past, you who formerly were Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision, you know, what is done in the body by human hands. Remember that that time you were separate from Messiah excluded from citizenship in Israel, being the people of God, the people descended from the prince of God. And you were foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. He's rubbing it in. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was in himself, in himself, to create one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Notice the vertical and the horizontal. You reconcile to God through the cross, and your hostility to others is brought to an end. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. Forgive us, reconcile to God, put to death the hostility. Same truth. And so he came, proclaimed, preached peace like the angels of Christmas who sang to the shepherds, you know, goodwill, glory to God in the highest peace on earth. God's grace, favor, goodwill to all people on whom his favor rests. He preached, proclaimed peace to you. This king, you see, Rome enforced its peace with a sword. He will buy our peace with a cross. They have the same shape. The one kills the others. The other lays down its life for its enemies. This is the power of the gospel in startling ways, preaching peace to those who are far away and peace to Inverted commas, those who were near. Yes, Israel was closer to the truth. But they weren't home. They still needed to come home. They weren't as far. 
through him, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access to the Father by his one spirit. Nuts and bolts number one. In his flesh, the text says. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm cherry picking the text because this has so much gold. I mean, we're just choosing enough for a couple of crowns and whatever, but we could have printed, you know, a whole lot of bullion out of this text. I'm just picking out a couple of crowns, maybe a ring for your fingers so that you can go out with that. Okay. In his flesh, through the word becoming flesh, John chapter 1, known variously as the incarnation. That word for incarnation is from the Latin carne, meaning flesh, you know, carnivore, whatever. And so to be incarnated is to become one who is in the flesh. And so the word, which was God, with God, through God, all things, through him, all things were made. And the word became carne. That's, I'm switching the Latin. I could give you the Greek as well, but I don't want to show off. The, the, the bottom line is we get this word that refers to the Christmas event. Like literally in his flesh, Jesus comes and he starts to live among us. And he tabernacles among us. I hope you're reading the tabernacle devotions that are coming because they have so much of this truth inside them. And as he does that, listen to this, Jesus completely fulfills and satisfies all the law, all its commandments. Jesus in his flesh does everything God has ever asked of humanity. Like he didn't slip once. He doesn't do anything God says you shall not. And he does do so beautifully, so surpassingly everything that God does. Now, every intention that God describes is not only satisfied, it is radically surpassed. You know, I mean, how can you tell someone to love someone without it being manipulation? <laughs> you have to simply initiate the love yourself. And so Jesus comes and he releases love. Now, the implications of the perfection of Jesus are quite radical for the law. Yah is the second Adam, the eschaton Jesus, the ultimate, I mean eschaton Adam actually is what 1 Corinthians 15 calls him. He's the ultimate Adam. Think of it. Having satisfied the law, so much of the law was about priests and temples and sacrifices and offerings and blood. Yah's a man who satisfies the law. Does he need a priest? Think about it. Does he need a sacrifice? Does he need a temple to meet with God? You see, when Jesus satisfied the law, he renders a whole lot of what does the redemptive ceremonial acts of the law obsolete. The moment you have a perfect Adam, all that stuff is wiped away for Jesus. He's the one person who doesn't need it. And in fact, he says, I have become the temple. I have become the priest. I have become the law. I am the new Torah. I literally satisfied. I completed in myself. Paul will write. Now, Messiah is the telos, the end of the law. He satisfies it, completes it, and renders it 
null and void, not in its description of God, his righteousness and holiness, because he fully satisfies that. He's not setting aside holiness. He's not setting aside the righteous requirements of the law. He's setting aside the things that were needed for those who were sinners. So, good enough. Jesus sets aside the law for himself. You get the logic of what Paul is saying? In his flesh, he sets aside the law. He literally lived it. He nailed it. He, 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 you know, it's absolutely satisfied in him. But Paul has just told us that we are in Christ. That because of his great mercy, God, who is rich in love, came and saved us. And now we are located inside of Jesus. And so the law and its judgments are set aside, not just for Jesus, but for all the people who are now in Jesus, who are in Christ. They are not, holiness is not set aside, it's, it's satisfied. The law is rendered obsolete, not because righteousness disappears, but because righteousness has been fulfilled. Now, this truth then, that for those in Jesus, the same requirements now fall away, are radical for Paul. He's, his mind is starting to go, do, 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 do. he's realizing a whole lot of dominoes are starting to fall. So if Jesus didn't need the sacrifice, if Jesus didn't need the temple, if Jesus didn't need a place to worship God and encounter God, what does it mean for those who are in Christ Jesus? They no longer need a temple. The Gentiles don't need to travel to Jerusalem to meet with God. They need to meet Jesus. But guess what? The Jews don't need to travel to Jerusalem to meet with God. They need to get inside Jesus. The Gentiles don't need another priest. The Jews won't need another priest. He realizes Israel is just as much transformed by the gospel as are the nations. God is making one new humanity, a new humankind out of this Jesus. And so neither... <laughs> because the priesthood falls away, because the sacrifices fall away, because the altars fall away, because the sanctuary itself is being surpassed. Paul says the dividing wall of the temple. Now, this was a technical term that described the construction of a wall that had a sign on it that warned Gentiles that if they went past this wall, their death would be on their own hands. They were liable for their own death. It says that wall... And that sign is broken. It's down. Why? Because of Jesus. We don't even need the whole temple. Now, this gets radical. Jesus has died for us so that the history of our past shall not have legal power over your future. Nuts and bolts number two. This is not just in the incarnation, but in the crucifixion. What was possible for Jesus because of his perfect life the law being set aside, is only possible for us because of his death. And so it happens by his blood, says the text. For Jesus, it happened by his life in the flesh. For us, it happens by his blood spilt. And so his body and his blood are our salvation. 
And so in one body, to reconcile both to God through the cross, he puts to death our hostility. We are forgiven, reconciled to God and to one another. Why? Through Jesus' death on the cross. And so Jesus becomes the legal basis on which I can reconnect to God, but in which I can say to people, I'm sorry, won't you forgive me? And I can say to people, I forgive you. Let's not let the past determine the future. Jesus is the legal basis. Hebrews 9 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. It's not as if I just get forgiveness you know, vertically. The death of Jesus is literally why I can reconcile to other people around me. It's not just why I can, it's why I must. I break the power of the past. Nuts and bolts number three. By the death of Jesus, we are readied for the future. Now, I've got a long reading and a short point, but it belongs together. So, I need you to put your thinking caps on and come with me to Hebrews and uh, chapter 9. By the death of Jesus, we are made ready for the future. Now, he's talking about the architecture of the tabernacle stroke temple. And the writer here says this, when everything had been arranged just like it was meant to be, the priests then entered the outer room to carry on their ministry. So there was a room in the temple that all the priests could go in. And that was sort of like the offering, the, 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 um, the altar was just outside that. And they would move between this room. It wasn't the Holy of Holies. It was just the priest's court. It was where they did the work of interceding for people, making the offerings. Then there was a men's court. There was a women's court. Then there was the dividing wall of hostility. And on outside of that was everyone else, the nations. And so you had the Holy of Holies, the, the priestly court, and the bridge to that was the altar, and then the men's court, the women's court, and then the court of the Gentiles or the nations on the outside. And all of those had walls that you couldn't cross. Now, only the high priest entered the inner room. That only once a year, and never without blood, which he then offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. And the Holy Spirit was showing something, that by this way, the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. You see, this tabernacle is about to be surpassed. Something's going to happen that's going to set it aside. Do you see the connection? Well, this guy wasn't Paul. Some people thought he should be, but a different author. But he's making the same point. This is an illustration for the right now. Indicating that the gifts and the sacrifices being offered were insufficient, unable to cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. They were just a matter of food, drink, ceremonial washings, external regulations, implying until the time of a new order. There's a new way of doing things that's about to be released. Verse 11 explains what it is. So when Messiah came as high priest of the good things, listen to this, now already here. Messiah has come bringing good things that are now already here. He went through the greater, more perfect tabernacle, not made with human hands, not even a part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of blood and, uh, of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood and so obtaining eternal redemption. Like 
eternal. It's not limited to time. So he gives us even more reason, this writer, why we no longer need priests and sacrifices and altars and temples and the whole mechanics. But he does not start with the outer wall. He starts with that inner, most sacred curtain. And both Paul and this writer knew this. That curtain, the moment Jesus died, was torn miraculously from top to bottom. Until that moment, by virtue of the law, hear me now, concentrate hard. God is separated from the high priest. The high priest is separated from the priests. The priests are separated from the people. The people are separated from one another with men separated from women. And Israel is separated from the nations. That's what the tabernacle and temple did. Put you in your place. But Jesus comes and satisfies the law by a perfect life, renders it obsolete, so that all who believe in him through his death find that the temple has been ripped open. The access to the most holy place is now available. And every dividing wall, every obstacle has been removed. The furthest Gentile can walk past the dividing wall, can blur the line between men and women, can knock down the altar that made you rely on a human priest, can walk through the priest court, can go where the high priest could only go once a year. You don't go without blood. You go with the blood of Jesus. But the furthest Gentile walks through every dividing wall into the most holy place because of Jesus. Thank you, Charles. I think everyone else would give Charles a round of applause. So he makes this point, verse 18. So through him, we all, we both have access to the Father by the Spirit. There's something in the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit that through Jesus, no matter how far away you are, no matter how many divisions there were between you and God before now, they have all been flattened. The architecture of the temple has been surpassed by the God of the temple. Don't let anyone reinvent Old Testament theology inside a New Testament covenant. This is Paul's concern. And just as we think, wow, I'm ready for communion now. Most of that represents space. You know what I mean? All those divisions. So there was a place. There's another place. There's another place. Men and women. They're the Gentiles. You're thinking spatially. The writer to Hebrews is thinking spatially. But he says there's another way to think about this. You see, the kingdom of heaven is not so much a place as it is a time, an era. The Bible constantly calls it the age to come. That's the kingdom of heaven that we're praying for. Your kingdom come, your will be done. We're praying for the age to come, to come in and fully displace this present age. Now, the writer to Hebrews says, think of that curtain. Yes, think of it spatially. He's made it very clear you could think of it spatially. But I want you to think that that curtain is going to tear open time itself. 
there is external regulations that apply until a new time, the time of the new order. And when Christ came, past tense, as high priest of the good things, notice what he says, that are now already here. Jesus tore the curtain between my past and his future. Think about that. Jesus tore the curtain between our past and his future. Literally the age to come from the presence of God, by the Spirit of God, through the ministry of Jesus, now makes its way into my past, redeems me, changes my present, and positions me for kingdom come. You see, the kingdom isn't a place in the sky. It's a day. It's called the day of the Lord. <laughs> and it's a day when his will gets done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a day in the future. But this writer shows us that the rigid separation between the future and the present has been torn down when Jesus died. The future is. Turn to the person next to you and say, the future is now already here. The future is now already here. Like, doesn't that mess with your mind, Joy? All God's goodness from the future starts to become present now. Do you see why this matters to how I process the past? Because God's future is becoming available to me even now. When Jesus said, you know, God so loved the world, gave his one and only son, whoever believes in him should not perish but have life of the eternal ages. That's the literal translation. Not eternal life, like one day you're going to float in a cloud, but the life of the eternal ages coming to you right now in the present. That's the literal translation. So this curtain represents time. And time has been surpassed by a new order, our future invading the present. And so we are the people who by faith and because of Jesus through the Spirit bring God's future into the present. Jackie's tired of hearing me say that, but we bring God's future into the present. Do you understand why this is so important? Like we are wrestling with how do I move out of COVID? How do I reposition myself? How do I forgive? How do I get myself going again after so much pain and so much loss? You come to Jesus. You come to his body broken. You come to the gospel itself. And you find he is able because he is bringing good things that are already here. And so the symbols that we're going to come to, and I'm going to ask those leading in communion and the worship team, won't you come forward? We've heard about his flesh. Incarnate. His body. In his body, he satisfied all the requirements. And on the cross, he offers himself unblemished to God. I think we're going to need more than just two. Could we? Thank you, Annie. Thank you, Hilda. And then it says we reconcile by his blood. And as Jesus offers himself, so that whole architecture that would keep us far 
begins to fall. And we are invited to come near. He preached peace to those who were far. He preached peace to those who were near. But right now, in Him, through Him, we have access. We have access. So today, the bread represents that flesh, His flesh. He says, when you do this, I want you to remember me. And He says, oh, this, this piece of bread, this cup, it's going to find its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Like this is a prophetic foretaste of the kingdom of God itself. My body and my blood are part of how the kingdom comes. And yes, this could just be a snack. But when you come and 